Today's episode is sponsored by Wild Realms. Quest with animal allies using their unique skills to discover the four realms and establish your animal kingdom. But beware, rare and powerful legendary beasts lurk and may be unleashed at any moment, shifting the balance of power across all kingdoms. A beautifully illustrated set collection game, Wild Realms is for two to four players, plays in about 60 minutes, and launches on GameFound on November 4th. Follow the GameFound preview page before launch to get a free 10-card legendary booster pack with your pledge. You can learn more about the game and check out its stunning artwork at wildrealmsgame.com. And if you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one, and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about player count. We're talking about what does it look like to design games? Why would you even do it for higher player counts? Normal games are, you know, the two to four or now more and more one to four. But what about five? What about six? What about more than that? And we're talking to Darren Terpstra from Ginger Snap Gaming. Darren, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Gabe. Yeah, man, you were here uh, many moons ago. <laughs> and uh, really excited to have you back. You've been working on quite a few games lately that have a, a lot of players that can dive in. I think some of your games go up to eight and, and maybe more. And I'm excited to uh, to chat with you about like what does it look like to design a game for more than four players? I feel like that's what people kind of do now. It's two to four, or in my case, solo games and, and only have to worry about one. And there's a whole lot of pros and a whole lot of cons, no matter which way you look at it and excited to dive into that. But before we get into it, who are you? How'd you get into game design? What have you been doing since the uh, last time you were on the show? Yeah, so my name is Darren Terpstra. I got into game design because my cousins, when I was growing up, uh, introduced us to Catan. I think when I was probably like eight or something, they had the German version. So if you got a development card, you had to look it up in like a printed out uh, rule book. Uh, so that was always a fun time when you're like eight trying to figure out what a development card is without letting other people know that you have it. Um, but then they taught us like, Carcassonne at one point and a bunch of different uh, Bonanza, uh, you know, just more modern board gaming before, you know, that's like, what, 20 years ago, 20 something years ago at this point. So it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, I might be getting my timing all messed up. Uh, don't, you know, go Google when uh, Catan came out. But yeah, I was really young. It was super fun to learn those games. And uh at one point i just wanted to play a game that was like dominion uh but with player more player interaction uh something with you know tactical movement or like fire emblem or final fantasy tactics and so i started working on my first game ignite 
um, which we successfully kickstarted uh, in 2019 uh, and have finally uh, fulfilled, which is nice, but we've hit pretty much every uh, roadblock that you could between <laughs> funding and getting the game here, including pandemics, manufacturing delays, and freight shipping cost explosions. So yeah, it's been it's been a journey. Gotcha. And it sounds like uh, a lot, uh, very similar to what a lot of people I've been talking to lately have all been experiencing. And so I guess, you know, at least the good news is you're not alone in all those challenges. But anyway, let's uh, let's dive right in. Let's let's get a good working definition and a good frame for the conversation. When you say higher player counts, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I would define it probably as uh, games that play over five. Uh, I think the two to five or one to five range is what I would consider more normal. Um, but I think when you start hitting above five is when uh, you're at a more higher player count game. Um, so uh, usually strategy games is still what I'm talking about when I'm talking about this. Uh, not so much party games or things of that nature, but they can also fall into the higher player count, I guess, genre. Right. And a lot of party games do, because typically when people have parties, it's more than three or four people. Uh, yeah. hopefully, hopefully you have a few more friends than that to invite. But if not, you know, that's OK. We still love you. But um, yeah, I, I think this is much more to do with the deeper, more complicated strategy games or whatever you want to call them, um, just because there's, there's a little, little bit more to think about. A lot of times party games are really just activities, not necessarily a game like the points don't necessarily matter. And so this is uh, whenever you have to think, whenever there's a lot more choices to be made and just so people listening get kind of an understanding of what we're talking about more specifically and so why do people play these games why do people look for a game with six that goes up to six players or seven or more like what, what do you think draws people to yeah i know for me uh it's because i had a player or a player group that was often in the five or six or even seven range uh, and I know that a lot of people will just split that group into multiple groups uh, with lower player counts and just play different games. But I always prefer to have everyone playing together, uh, everyone playing on the same game, because it's just sort of sad to have half your friends in another room or, you know, other end of the house even uh, playing something and you don't even interact with them. So for me specifically, it's just so that I can have all of my friends all having the same experience collectively with me as opposed to having to split them up. And I think a lot of people uh, felt that, Ray. Um, I know that I see Facebook uh, group questions all the time of, hey, do you have a game that you would recommend for X you know, number of players, uh, six, seven, eight even? Um, so there are people looking for them, probably less so right now in the middle of uh, this whole pandemic thing. But yeah, that's it's been it's been a real challenge for some people to find a game that they like at those higher player counts. Absolutely. And a lot of people go to game night to hang out with everybody that's going to be there, right? So if, you're, if your game night has seven or eight people, you know, people typically want to hang out with everyone. They want to experience the same game at roughly the same time. And so it makes sense why they wouldn't want to break up into two or three smaller games. You know, everybody wants to play you know, together. And it makes a lot of sense. And so why design one though? It seems like there's a lot of challenges, a lot of things to think about. Uh, the market for these games is probably a little bit less, but if I'm wrong, please let's chat about that uh, as, as far as like the demographics and how many people are, are looking for these games. But what, what drew you as a designer to create games that go up to six, seven, eight plus players? 
Yeah, for me, it's because I like to design for myself and even my family or my gaming group uh, specifically. I think it's, you know, because my gaming group is usually at a higher player count, I enjoy uh, creating something that we can all play together and it allows us to play test it together uh, and run through that. Uh, I think if you do it well, you can get a game that works from a lower pl player count all the way to a higher player count so that it uh, fills the bucket for various different people. Um, but obviously I don't think that if you're making a two player specific game, you can make it go all the way up to eight or anything like that. But you can usually take a game that plays well, you know, all the way up to six and with some tweaks, uh, bring it down to a lower player count in my experience, at least. Yeah. Now, were you also drawn to these types of games because of your play group? Like I was drawn to solo games because I had a tendency to play games by myself because of the nature of, of my life, <laughs> my life situation <laughs> kind of dictated uh, that I was going to be playing solo games. I was like, well, I might as well design some. Did you have a similar situation where you're like, well, I've got these seven friends that play games. I might as well design games for all of us. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And whenever I was working on a game, I think I just sort of automatically what uh lean towards creating a game that could be tested by the entire gaming group as opposed to well i'll only have to specifically invite you know x number of people over to play it um so yeah definitely building it for myself uh and i really love taking a game home that i'm working on over christmas and thanksgiving and playing it with my family uh, i'm one of four siblings so there's six of us in our core family and then plus in-laws now so you've got all the way up to nine if if everyone's uh, home at the same time. So, yeah. Gotcha. All right, let's get into like the pros and cons. Start off with the, with the pros. What are the pros of designing games at these higher player accounts? What are the things that, you know, really just get the juices going? Yeah, the pros uh, from a marketing perspective, uh, if you if your game is received well, there are a ton of people who you, you fall into a smaller bucket uh, as it were, there's there's less games that you're competing with. Uh, when I see people asking, hey, what are good games that play up to seven players or something like that? You see Scythe with the expansion. You see uh, Deception, Murder in Hong Kong. You see, uh, you know, like Secret Hitler or various other um, social deduction games. But you're you're essentially limiting down the amount of competition that you have. So you're so your fans that know that you play up to that higher player count are hopefully uh, pitching you to these people looking for a game like that. So I think that's a definite pro. Um, and secondly, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of player interactivity at those higher player counts that you might not get at the lower player counts. Uh, for example, my game Ignite, which is essentially Dominion meets Final Fantasy Tactics, it's I think best at higher player counts. I love it at the six, seven, eight player range because you're making negotiations with people. You're making, you know, paper, uh, paper thin treaties with people, uh, promising not to attack each other so that both of you can get a little bit further in your card economy and in your deck building uh, and trying to, at the same time, keep yourself 
away from other players that are coming in trying to take your spot and it it just leads to a more engaging time when you have more people that you're uh, enjoying the experience with as opposed to if you're playing a four-player game and you essentially only have three people to be watching out for and you've already made friends with one of them then really there's only two people that you're really you know positioning your miniatures uh, against as opposed to with a six or seven player game where you've got just people left right and center and you're just trying to figure out okay how much do i risk where do i put my positioning that sort of thing yeah those are some really good points and going back to the marketing side of things yeah the the number of people overall is much smaller but you have a much better chance of standing out because you can be a bigger fish in a smaller pond. There are just fewer games, especially fewer good games, like really good games that uh, go up to these player counts. Or let me, let me take that back. There are a lot of games that go up to this, these player counts that are very mediocre once you go past four players, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of games that go up to six uh, and maybe more and maybe have an expansion to extend the number of, of players they can be at the table at the same time but they're not the best experience. And so if you are able to create a game that goes up to six, goes up to eight, and it's really, really good, it's a very similar experience or the same or a better experience than what it would be at four players, or even like you're saying, kind of on the second half of things, like designing games for four to eight, you know, like just leaning into, this game is for a bunch of people. It doesn't play with two or three. It doesn't play with four. It's five to 10 or whatever it is. And really leaning into that design space because you're going to make different decisions. And that's something I'm sure we'll get to here in just a minute the different decisions you make when you know there's going to be seven people at the table as opposed to three. It's just a totally different thing as far as the dynamics of how long does a turn take? How in, uh, involved should other players be with other players' turns? Like well, all the different things you have to think about depending on the number of players. And so, all right, anything else you want to add as far as like the pros, like the good side of things, maybe something from another one of your games or anything like that? Um. I I think at this point, no, we can go to the cons and then we can just talk through, um, yeah, some other ways that you can do the higher player count games. All right, let's do it. Let's talk about the cons. What are the drawbacks? What are the negatives of designing or producing, marketing these games? Yeah, so there, <laughs> if you're doing a wide gamut of high to lower player count, there's there's going to be pitfalls with balancing. Uh, so again, talking about Ignite, one of the, one of the main cards that, uh, we use actually in your starting setup, um, is called Meteor Strike and you essentially, uh, sort of like Battleship, you choose a spot at the turn that you use the card. And then at the beginning of your next turn, whoever is in that spot gets destroyed. And we had played with this card. We had played with it a bunch. We had played a bunch with two players but we never apparently had that card specifically in a two-player game during our player uh, playtesting. And so, of course, the game launches, the game ships, and people are like, I feel like the Meteor Strike is overpowered. And I'm like, no, 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 we've playtested with this like a ton. It's not overpowered. You just need to lean more into the movement cards. You need to you know, try and keep them out of the czar, and I'm giving all these things. And they're like, yeah, but I'm playing at two players, which... I then, it just, I realized when you're playing with two players, you're playing with six units as opposed to three, but your your hand size doesn't increase. So you can't move as many of the units as you can when you're only moving three units. You can't, you can't move all six of your units. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like it was just, it was just an oversight. Uh, and that's just me being honest. 
uh, an oversight at the lower player count um, like level. And the same thing goes if you're doing a lot of your play sessions or play testing sessions at lower player counts, there's going to be something that you probably miss um, at a higher player count. So that's just a risk that comes with it. And again, you can minimize it as much as you can with play testing. Like you always say, like keep play testing. That's what you want to be doing. But uh, you can come up with just things that you didn't realize would happen or you just uh, edge case sort of things uh, when you're working on that. Uh, another con of doing higher player count games is you have to put more materials into the game itself, uh, which your increases your manufacturing costs and then also increases the price that you have to charge for the game. Um, so I'm working on a up to 13 player uh, game called Rocket Cats, which is like Worms Armageddon meets Robo Rally, or like some people liken it to Super Smash Brothers, where you're just like doing all sorts of crazy attacks and there's like platforms and movement and stuff. Um, and it's a programming game, so it still moves very fast. Uh, but the issue is, even with just the minimal amount of pieces uh, that Rocket Cats has, as far as player pieces, you know, you've got essentially your cat meeple, uh, which looks really nice, but uh, it's not like we're doing miniatures or anything like that. But uh, the the amount of cards that you have to have because it plays up to 13 players increases. The amount of board space that you need to have because it goes up to 13 players increases. And then, you know, if you want to throw in a lower player count map, you know, to uh, condense the field into a smaller area, that's an additional piece that you have to put into the game. So there's all of these sort of cascading uh, ripple effects as far as manufacturing costs when you have a higher player count game. Oh yeah, that's definitely, definitely something to keep in mind, especially if you're going to, going to be pitching your game to a publisher, right? Mm -hmm. and, and really thinking through, all right, what is the cost of this? Because that's the first thing more than likely that the publisher is going to think about. Wow, okay, how much am I going to have to charge? And the players that are probably going to buy this game are they willing to pay that? And if not, then either we got to shrink it down. We can't go to, up to eight. Maybe it only goes up to six and maybe release a, an expansion later that then takes it up seven or eight players. But anyway, there's a lot to think about from the manufacturing and the cost of things. And I think that should really influence your choices as a designer. And obviously if you're just designing, you're not publishing, you're not going to know exactly how much things are going to change. Like, okay, if I add 40 more cards, what does that change the price? You're, you might not know exactly, but you can probably get a pretty good idea and maybe talk to some people that have been in the industry and, and designed games that go up to these higher player counts and just ask them, Hey, if I want to add, you know, 10 more dice, what does that do to the cost? If I want to add 10 more miniatures, all these questions need to be asked as you're working on it. That way you don't get to a pitch meeting and then the publisher's like, no, this will be a $200 game. I can't publish this. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so kind of know no, that absolutely. going in. Uh, do you have any advice as far as that goes? Anything you've seen? Cause you, you've seen the, the publishing side, the manufacturing costs and whatnot, anything you've noticed, you're like, okay, if I added this material or if I added this type of component that it really shot the cost up and I had to think about that, any little anecdotes as far as that goes? So I think the only big anecdote that I have, uh, or small little anecdote, is we were wanting to add uh, wooden weapon meeples for this Rocket Cats game uh, as an additional add-on. And trying to figure out how many wooden meeples to send for an essentially up to 13 player game was just hard because 
if you send a boatload of them, it's going to increase your weight. It's not going to fit into the base box, which was really important to us. Um, but then if you didn't send enough, obviously you're going to get complaints because, oh, we were playing with a bunch of people and we, you know, bought the add-on to have the wooden meeples, weapon meeples, and then we ran out of grenades or we ran out of rockets uh, and we had to use cardboard ones and wooden ones at the same time, which obviously no one wants. So you just get into some tricky situations like that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And just thinking through, because I mean, <laughs> how many times have I played a game and I think Fantasy Flight Games is like the worst company about doing this you need just like five more dice if i just had five more dice then i wouldn't have to keep passing around the exact same dice to everybody or i'd have enough to i could roll and not have to like remember and then re-roll some other ones and go okay i think what did i and let me get some note paper out let me let me write down what i rolled because i don't have enough dice to actually roll enough dice for my turn and so that's so frustrating as a player and so just be mindful of that if you're publishing games or if you're designing these types of games you want to make sure players aren't frustrated by just playing your game at what it says it's able to be played at or you know like it's just something to uh, to keep in mind all right so you talked about balance let's talk about downtime i think that's one of the main drawbacks in having a lot of players at the table at the same time is if a turn takes let's say one extra minute right well now that's multiplied by six or multiplied by eight so and then that's one turn and that's eight extra minutes and then let's say there's 10 turns over the course of a game that's 80 extra minutes and so it's just something to think about is like how do we decrease downtime as much as possible what are your thoughts what are some uh, things you've run into with your own games tell me about it yeah so for me i always focus on the perceived downtime uh and that might just seem like splitting hairs but for ignite uh as an example the perceived downtime is less uh when you're at a higher player count because you need to be paying attention to what other people are buying because there's such a uh, a benefit to knowing what's in other people's decks um, so that you can have a counter strategy or so that you can prepare against it. So if someone buys a Kraken, you need to stay out of the water, for example. Um, but it keeps people engaged more so because they're watching what other people are buying as they're trying to figure out their strategy as opposed to you know, Dominion, if you're playing at a higher player count, you can just sort of zone out until it comes back to you um, and then buy your card. I actually have some friends, if they're playing Dominion, they they pretty much just almost don't have a turn structure. It's like they're all playing their turn at the same time uh, and they just sort of keep track of like whose technical turn it is for like the slowest person. But they'll just, it'll go boom, 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 boom around the table uh, with everyone just not even paying attention to what the other person is because it doesn't it, it doesn't affect them at all. Uh, so making sure that their turns are directly applicable to you and you can uh, create some sort of strategy or pivot um, based off of what they're doing can lower the perceived downtime um, of the game. Uh, again, and also just making sure that your turns are able to be done rather quickly, um, the turn time being minimized. So for Ignite, uh, it's you, you have a full round to figure out what to do with your cards, and you can pretty much only use the cards in your hand unless you have something that allows you to draw more cards, um, which we didn't put a ton of those in the game just because we didn't want to end up with some sort of massively long turn structure. Um, 
but you sort of know what you're going to do and then it comes to your turn and you're like i'm buying these this card for this much honor and then i'm moving this guy two spaces and that's it uh one of my favorite play sessions uh at gen con one time was with these people and one of them had bought a game that had a bell and i just think all high player count games should have bell because it just made it so much better because there was none of this oh it's my turn sort of thing because they just dinged the bell in the middle of the table uh, after they had finished their turn. And they finished a, I think, eight-player game, game of Ignite in like an hour and a half. And usually we can do it in two hours, but because they were just so on top of it, it went through in an hour and a half. And so that's not telling you to put a bell into your game. That's just saying if you can make it so that your turns are laid out in advance um, and you're able to sort of plan ahead, uh, that'll help a lot with the with the perceived downtime and the actual downtime. Another example of this is in our bag building 4X game called Defiant. Uh, you draw your cubes for your next turn out of your bag at the end of your current turn. So you have a full round to figure out, okay, I'm gonna use this here, this here, and this here. And we even have you know play testers who put it in the spot where they're gonna put it just above that spot so that they slot them down into that spot and then take the action. So they essentially know what they're going to do as soon as it gets their turn, which again, increases uh, or decreases the play time. Uh, and then lastly, if there's a way for you to do something simultaneous during turns. So a great example is Scythe, uh, where if you play uh, with experienced people, you can do it that you take your top action and you do that. And then if you're taking the bottom, section action uh the next person can start their turn uh it works with more experienced scythe players not so much beginner scythe players but it just allows the turn to move uh to the next player while you're still doing something that isn't going to directly affect them um, additionally drafting and programming games those allow you to do a lot of the stuff uh, simultaneously with the other players, which obviously uh, decreases downtime. So Rocket Cats, for example, is a programming game. So you lay out all of your cards at the same time as everyone else is programming out their cards, uh, which allows a lot of that time of, you know, the downtime to happen all at once with everyone actually doing something. Uh, and then you go through uh, what the consequences of those choices were. Gotcha. Okay. That, that's a lot. Let's, uh, let's go back for a second. And... <laughs> Yeah, there's some really good good advice right there. I want to go back and talk about perceived downtime versus actual downtime because no matter what type of game you're designing, if if it has any number of players, then you're going to be dealing with some form of downtime. And so let's let's talk about that. Let's dive a little bit deeper into that. What would you say is is a good definition of that? As far as like what is it, what is perceived downtime exactly compared to quote unquote actual downtime? Yeah, so actual downtime is going to be just a, a, an actual number of how much time in the game is happening outside of you taking your turn um, for the round usually. So if it's, you know, a round and I play my turn and then it's 10 minutes before my next turn comes up, that's, I consider like a 10 minute downtime between rounds. Perceived downtime is more so mental um, and it comes down to how bored did I feel during that 10 minutes or whatever uh, in between what was happening? So, you know, you get really gung-ho TI4 players and 
they, I mean, it could be 20 minutes between um, them taking their one action and them taking their next action, but then you're also able to play off of other people. Um, so you're, you have a vested interest in what they end up doing and, you know, choosing whether to copy um, that effect or not, you know, to a lesser extent. Um, so even when, okay, I choose not to actually copy this, there's, there's a lower perceived downtime because you made a choice between, you know, your turn and your next turn sort of thing. Um, another good game that follows a similar rule is uh, Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea, where you're able to copy uh, some of the effects that someone else does. Um, and so it moves, it just moves the game forward with you still making decisions, even when it's not directly your turn. Um, but yeah, the perceived downtime, I think that becomes excruciatingly painful when someone else's turn has nothing to do with you. So again, we used the Dominion example earlier, you know, perceived downtime will go down a little bit if it's a, if it's a worker placement game where the spot can only be taken by one person, as opposed to if the spot can be taken by a lot of people. So like, I wasn't a huge fan of Euphoria. Sorry, Jamie Stegmeier, I like the rest of your stuff. Um, but I, I didn't like the fact that most of the spots could be taken by multiple people, because to me, it took out a lot of the tension of the game. And it made the downtime, the perceived downtime for me, longer because I really didn't care too much what other people were doing with their dice because I knew what I was going to be doing next and it was just waiting for me to do that and there wasn't really any vested interest in what anyone else really did right and in a lot of ways this kind of gets back to like what I talk about a lot with balance it's not about real balance it's about perceived balance it's how do the players feel and the same with this, but as far as downtime, it's really, it just comes down to, do they feel like they're sitting there waiting forever? They could go eat a sandwich, run out to the store and come back and it's still not their term yet. Do they feel like that? Or do they feel engaged? Do they feel like other players' turns matter? Are they sitting there staring at the board, looking at other people's cards or strategies or whatever? Are they engaged? And so, yeah, I think that goes a long way in helping these these games that have a lot of people at the table. Uh, not feel like they're just sitting around and then also does the game uh, encourage this engagement so a lot of social deduction games you know it might not be your turn for a while but you're allowed to talk well it's not your turn and so you're throwing out like clues and ideas and they oh well, look what they just did look what the card they they just uh, put in the middle of the table is that means this or that and so it's, it's not your turn necessarily but you're still involved in the game at hand and so it's just uh, things to think about you mentioned earlier uh, leaning into the the larger player count i think that's a great way uh, to do it and so and actually let's let's keep talking as far as that goes what are some other thoughts other ideas maybe based on your own designs your own games as far as how to lean into the larger player counts how do you do that effectively i think the things that i talked about before either simultaneous turns or making sure turn time is minimized um those those are super important in that uh i try and if I am specifically making a game for a really large player count, uh, I think simultaneous turns is almost necessary. So uh, just like uh, Secret Hitler, one of the social deduction games that you were talking about, um, having all of that happen sort of at the same time is greatly important. Uh, another example is I'm working on uh, a game based off of uh, the Among Us video game or inspired by it. I don't have the IP or anything. But in that game, uh, you it's a real-time 
dice chucking social deduction game essentially so you are a person on this map and you're rolling your dice and you can activate one of the die that you roll um in order to take an action and so you're trying to go through this ship and find the resources that you need in order to take off in your escape pod um if you're a good guy and if you're a bad guy you're trying to essentially take out the people before they can do that so you're rolling a die all at the same time and then when you activate it, there's multiple of the move actions on each die. So you place it on your card and then you move your your player piece. And if you end up on the same spot as someone else, you guys have to trade cards. And essentially there's attack cards and defense cards. And if their attack card beats your defense card, then you're dead. And there's a whole you know thing about that. Um, but the fact we it's sort of funny because we took the fact that everyone is doing something at the same time and we integrated it into a social deduction game because you can't be paying attention to everyone and also be working on the thing that you need to do in order to win the game so you're trying to sort of split your attention between what you're doing with your own dice and moving around the board and also just trying to keep one eye on the board to see who interacts with who so that you can get uh some information on who might be the uh, trader in the group or the traders of the group, um, and so it's it's fun to it's fun to see a game that plays with so many people become even better because there's more people to uh, be being aware of. You have to you know keep your eye on that many more people as people are moving around the board, um, and so it just makes for a, a really interesting experience because you're able to do all of these simultaneous turns as everyone else is doing their simultaneous turns as well. Now, I imagine that also runs into a potential con with these games and that's overload. It's over being overwhelmed by so many different things going on at the table, especially if it's a free for all game and there's six other people. And now I got to think about, okay, this person's over here doing this. They're over there doing that. What am I going to do to stop this or that? It's just could be a lot of information to take in. And so do you have any advice on how to limit the cognitive load for a player so they don't feel just wildly overwhelmed by so many different things going on at the table at the same time? I think that making sure that a person has their specific objective or their specific role that they're trying to play. So in the Among Us inspired game, you're trying to get to point A and then back to point B and then to point C and then back to your pod. Um, and so it's like, okay, I need to go from here to here. And yes, I can do, I can split my awareness to try and keep track of what other people are doing. But if I don't feel up to that, I don't have to. And I can just make a mad dash for it. And we've had plenty of players win the uh, Among Us inspired game by just doing that, but they won't be that much more help. They won't be much help to the group uh, when people are trying to figure out who the actual bad guy is, um, which could make them seem more like the bad guy. Uh, another example is in Rocket Cats, we actually allow the team to come together uh, before each programming phase for them to sort of figure out what their game plan is. And we've tested it without that, and we've tested it with it, and it's almost night and day, the difference that that just a minute of team collaboration does, because all of a sudden it goes from, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing to like accomplish my mission, my goal. There's just so many moving pieces and things going on to, okay, like 
we as a team decided that I'm going to be messing with their, you know, Jula cat character. And so my only job is to mess with them to make sure that they can't uh, implement their plans. Um, or maybe my job is to just throw as many projectiles over in this area of the map as possible so that uh, Romeo can get and get hit by all of these different things. Um, and so just taking that big overarching gameplay and taking it into, okay, this is my sort of assigned role of it, uh, I think can really help players uh, turn it from almost an overload into, okay, this is what my specific role is in this game. Very cool. Also, does this play into as far as like limiting the number of options or number of actions a player can do on a turn? Does that also kind of help with the the overwhelm because you've only got a few things you can do, you know, one or two actions you can do. So one that keeps the turns flowing really, really quickly, but also kind of limits the amount of information you have to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Limiting options. Um, I usually limit options either. So in the Among Us game, we limit your options because you only have three options showing on your dice at any point. So you can only take one of those options. Um, in Rocket Cats, you only have the cards you have available to you in order to choose uh, what you do. And we actually are working on a, a sort of easy mode, uh, sort of a party game mode to Rocket Cats, which actually takes the overall structure and limits it down even more. So you can play it as more of a, you know, you know, beer and pretzels sort of game where it's less overall strategy. Uh, so limiting it down in that way. I think another really important thing is limiting how many upgrades you have to keep track of of other players. I think that's really important because there's just, I've, I've seen reviews, I don't even remember of what games, but I remember especially Shut Up and Sit Down uh, talks about games where there's just so many things that other people have or have unlocked or have as special abilities and things that at some point you just can't keep track of it all and you just take your best guess of what is a good thing to do. I think they were talking about the TI4 expansion when they specifically um, talked about this, but if you're playing a high player count game and you just don't limit how many upgrades and special abilities and special powers and asymmetrical race abilities or whatever, um, that a person is able to have, then there's going to be more of that cognitive drain as opposed to, for example, Ignite, where you've got, you know, your special race ability, but then you also only have 10 different cards or I'm sorry, not 10, 16 different cards in the card market uh, that they have the ability to buy. So it's not like they're going to pull out some sort of crazy card that you've never seen before. You only have the cognitive load of working with those sixteen cards and what uh, the implications of those cards are for the game. Gotcha. All right, let's uh, switch gears a little bit. Let's talk more about playtesting. You mentioned it earlier, and some things to think about as far as if you have a game that goes up to a bunch of players and all the way down to just a couple, then you got to do a lot more playtesting. You got to really make sure you're playtesting every single card, every single possibility, every single thing that could happen. Otherwise, you might run into some weird edge cases and things that make the game a little bit less fun in certain situations. And so, tell me either a little bit more about any anything along those lines, or just playtesting in general, as far as like what you're looking for when you're designing these high player count games. Yeah, so I think you have to look at every card and every power and uh, check it through essentially. How powerful is it in each player count setting? 
uh, especially if you have a wide gamut of how many player counts your game can can run. Um, something that we did specifically for Ignite was we went through all of the cards and sort of ran them through the other cards uh, that are in Ignite to try and figure out edge cases. And something else that we should have done was taking each card and running them through each uh player count. Uh, I think that would have been a really good exercise that we didn't um, do. So there was, again, that meteor strike thing just was able to slip through that it's essentially overpowered at the two player player count uh, because you have twice as many people that you're using. Uh, it works at other player counts. Um, and you just sort of have to also understand that some of your cards are going to be more or less powered depending on how many players there are. And I think that's true of pretty much every game. Um, there's going to be some card that is better or less good, depending on how many people you're playing with. Um, so for example, we have another card in Ignite called uh, Full Moon Axe, which if you hit the person, even if they block it, they have to discard a card. Um, and so that's less powerful when you're playing with a higher player count, such as six people, as, to oppose, as opposed to if you're playing with only two or three, um, because essentially every card that you take away from an opponent at that lower player count, the less attacking force you have to deal with with your main opponent or main opponents. Um, so there's tons of things like that. Uh, and it can work the opposite way, where a card can be really, really uh, non-powerful at two players or three players. Uh, an example from Ignite is Massive Blizzard. So if you use this card, all of the other players have a harder time moving around the board. Um, and so it's going to be less helpful when you're playing a two or three player game because you're just not having as much uh, benefit from it because there's less people affected by it. Uh, same thing would be true of attack cards in Dominion. If you're playing with only two people in Dominion and an attack card, uh, might not have the the overall negative effects as many of them as it would in a you know four or six player game with expansions. Yeah, absolutely. And again, just kind of comes back to how much time are you willing to put in? Would you say that you know I'm, I'm assuming you've designed games for all sorts of different player counts at this point? Is there just more playtesting to be done at these higher player counts? Is that just something a designer needs to know going in? You're just going to have to do more of it. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, I think if you get into the higher player count games, especially if you're also trying to allow it to play to lower player counts, it's just going to increase the amount of playtesting that needs to happen with it. Right. And so that's that's another reason why a lot of people don't design these types of games. Honestly, uh, one, you have to have access to a lot more playtesters in general because you need to have seven or eight people to sit around a table and play your game, even when it's awful and not super fun yet or any fun at all. So tell me about that. How in the world did you find so many people to play your game? Again, does that get back to your gaming group was this big? So it kind of lent itself to that. But what else? How do you find players to, to playtest these games? Yeah, yeah. I was extremely blessed by having so many people in my player group uh, that I could lean on to play the, the game with over and over again. Um, I think if you don't have the ability to pull together a group of that size uh, decently regularly, it's going to be extremely difficult for you to create a game that works well at higher player counts because you just you have to be able to play test it and you have to be able to do it repeatedly um, with the same people, with different people, uh, with different 
kinds of people with different backgrounds and uh, you know experience in playing games and different gaming experiences. So if you're not able to get that sort of uh, group together, it's going to be extremely hard. Uh, for example, I moved recently from Colorado, which I had a lot of gaming friends to play stuff through with, uh, to Florida, where I have much fewer uh, people to uh, playtest stuff with. And so my ability to playtest some of my uh, higher play count prototypes has sort of languished for a little bit. And so we haven't been able to get as much progress on them as I would have liked, because you can't you can't do a lot of testing if you can't get a, a good game of the right size together for it. So you can do some testing at the lower player counts, but you really need to be able to get the testing at all the player counts. Um, so, yeah. Right. And with a lot of games, if you if you want to early on, you can just play all the sides. I'm able to play this player and that player and this player over here. And playing as three players is not a ton you know it's just this deck and that deck and that other one i can do that by myself and play through this player's turn and that one and then the other if it's eight and i'm having to keep track of eight different players and then think through strategy it's just a lot it's just overwhelming as a designer not that you can't do it it's just pretty challenging and so things to uh, to be aware of make sure you have the people that can do it now because of the pandemic a lot more people have tabletop simulator they have tabletopia they're more aware of being able to play games and play test games online so maybe that something that can can help there but in general it's just gonna it's gonna be a challenge it's gonna be one of the drawbacks to designing these types of games but what else darren anything else we haven't talked about haven't gone into anything from your games or games in general well i mean talking about tabletop simulator i feel like tabletop simulator does not i feel like it helps a lot with smaller play count games Uh, i think it's easier to to get playtesting done with those smaller play to count games uh, over TTS because there's just, I guess, just less, there's more room on the table for the both of you as opposed to a higher player count game where you've got, you know, people sitting super close to each other around this uh, electronic table and you've got to, you know, shrink down the cards so that they're super small so that you can even put something in front of you. Um, it just leads... I think tabletop simulator prototyping uh, is super helpful and can be done super well, uh, but it lends itself, I believe, to a lower player count game. Uh, and even on top of that is because of the amount of time that it adds to everyone's turns. Just because when you play something on TTS, it's going to take probably at least a half an hour to an hour longer than if you played it physically at a table, just due to the constraints and the junk that you have to deal with with doing something on electronic as opposed to in person. Yeah, that's a great point. Go ahead and, and add at least 30 minutes to an hour of just on top of what a normal game takes if you're playing it on online. It just, it just is what it is. It just takes longer and so all right anything else you want to add as far as uh, designing higher player count games yeah no i think if you're able to do it and if you're able to play test them well and you've got a great design for it uh where people either don't feel like there's much downtime or people are taking their turns uh simultaneously uh i would highly recommend putting your game out there because you are in just a smaller a smaller pond and so you can be a bigger fish if you've come up with something really amazing as opposed to if you have a game going all all the way up to four you know two to four sort of uh game you're competing against every other two to four player game that's ever come out which is just a huge bigger pond so yeah there's that yeah for sure 
Darren, this has been great. Tell listeners where they can find out more about your games. You've mentioned several games that are both published and in the works. Where can people find out more? Yeah, so our main uh, website is gingersnapgaming.com. There you can find out a little bit about Ignite, a little bit about Rocket Cats, and a little bit about Defiant. Um, We have a Rocket Cats-specific landing page that you can go to if uh, the idea of Worms Armageddon meets Robo Rally, uh, you know, suits your fancy and you're interested in something that plays a lot like Super Smash Brothers uh, with some programming, uh, and that's RocketCatsGame.com. Uh, we'll be launching either Rocket Cats or our uh, Among Us inspired game next on Kickstarter, uh, and it would be great to uh, have you along for the ride. Awesome. Well, Darren, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with so many games that you have in the works and everything else you got going on right now. Thanks you so much. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?